Amen and amen. Well, good morning and welcome. It is good to see you here. And uh, this question has been burning on my mind all week, and I'm sure you have been wrestling with this very question all week also. If you haven't, now you can. Uh, and you find that that's a bit strange. But if we were all to uh, get in our uh, 787 Dreamliner and fly to Boston, uh, we could go to the museum of uh, the Brooklyn Museum, excuse me, Brooklyn, Brooklyn Museum of Egyptian Art. And there we might be able to meet Edward Bielberg. He is the director, the curator of the Egyptian Museum of Art. And he was surprised the first few times he heard this question by uh, people who were visiting the museum. They said, why do these Egyptian statues have broken noses? And so he had taken for granted that, well, these are old sculptures. I'll give you a picture of one here. It's hard to see that guy, but see, he uh, doesn't have a nose. Here's another one of uh, three of them, and all their noses have been removed. And so as uh, Edward Bailberg uh, did some studying, he realized it was more than just being thousands of years old and being quite fragile in that case. And by the way, noses kind of stick out, so they're easy to knock off. Uh, but he started seeing a consistency of pattern as he studied Egyptian sculptures, not only at the Brooklyn Museum, but also in other places, other museums around the world. There was a widespread pattern of deliberate destruction. He said, and I quote Edward, the consistency of the patterns of damage found in the sculptures suggest that it is purposeful. Uh, a three-dimensional statue is kind of easy to say, well, the nose just got bumped and it fell off, but also on the flat reliefs, uh, the noses had been chiseled away, and so he started seeing that. And he did some study into ancient Egypt, and here's what he found. He said, the Egyptians believed that the essence of a deity or an uh, idol, a god, could inhabit the image of the deity. Uh, these campaigns of vandalism were therefore intended to deactivate the image's strength. The damaged part of the body is no longer able to do its job. Without a nose, the statue spirit ceases to breathe, and so the vandal is effectively killing it. And they also knocked the ears off of many of them, so they couldn't hear the prayer of the people. In fact, it was so systemic in ancient Egypt that the pharaohs issued decrees with uh, uh, threatens, threatening uh, these vandals with death for anybody who would destroy or mar their likenesses in stone because they were considered, pharaohs, of course, were considered deities or gods. And Bielberg noted that the skill evidenced by the iconoclasts, which means to destroy the image, uh, they were not vandals recklessly and randomly striking out against works of art. In fact, he says that the targeted precision of their chisels suggests that they were skilled laborers trained and hired for this very exact purpose. Therefore, I think all of us, we may not worship idols of stone, but I find in my own life that there are probably some idols that I need to deactivate. I need to knock their noses off, if you will. And that's what James is doing for us today. He's doing it for us in the whole issue of our uh, desire for immediacy. And the flip side of immediacy, of course, is impatience. We want to be uh, have everything done right away, don't we? There's one more there. So today we're going to discover the discipline of patience out of James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. 
One article I read uh, analyzed our culture, our society, and this very complex problem of immediacy. And uh, he, they, that writer said, we speed date, we eat fast food, we use self-checkout lines in grocery stores, we try the one-weekend diet, we pay extra for overnight ship, shi- shipping, uh, honk when the light turns green, we thrive or dive on quarterly earning reports, we speak in half sentences, we start things but we don't fin. Uh, we, we tweet stories in 140 characters or less, yet some tweets are too long. We cut corners. We take shortcuts. We text TXT. Uh, we send new faces to Washington every two years, and then we vote the rascals out two years later. We clamor for more safety in the skies and then complain when security takes too long or is inconvenient. We order on-demand uh, movies and clips of movies at least, and we need probably to deactivate this idol of impatience or immediacy. And I am struck by that too. If you've ever had your, found yourself tapping your foot, waiting the two and a half seconds for your microwave to finish heating up the water or whatever it is in your life, uh, it has a strength in our lives, these things, that uh, this impatience. And in facing our impatience, we need to discover that it takes discipline especially when we all have these smartphones and we can just look up everything we want on Google and we can get an immediate answer to most all of our questions, except perhaps the most important questions. Well, James is addressing that here today, and he, if you were with us last week, you know that he really uh, came across prophetically against the rich that were abusing their wealth. And uh, he continues in this same argument. If you look at your copy of James chapter 5, verse 7, There is the word therefore, or a synonym in your version, but therefore. In other words, in light of what he has just said about uh, the problems that uh, the poor have and the people are having that he is writing to, uh, that we need to pay attention about these things, about life's adversities and how we can become very impatient, especially when life becomes difficult. Remember back in chapter 1, he begins uh, this letter in verse 2 of chapter 1, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So today, James is addressing the discipline of waiting, the discipline of endurance, and the discipline of truthfulness in this passage for us today. We are coming close to finishing up the book of James in the next couple of weeks, God willing, We will complete it, and then the bigger question is, is how has it changed my life? How has it changed your life if you've been through with us through this teaching? But James addresses first the discipline of waiting, the discipline of waiting in verses 7 through 9. And it begins in verse 7, if you take your copy of God's Word and look at it, Therefore, be patient, brethren. And uh, James takes off his prophet's hat, and he puts on his pastor's hat again. Remember, he is addressing the brethren, and that is not gender-specific. It addresses men and women, male and female, in the early church. Remember that this was the earliest letter written in the New Testament, the earliest book of the New Testament. I believe it was probably written about 36 A.D., and uh, most scholars will bump that up to about 44, but we do know it was well before 49 A.D., and so it's an earliest letter in the New Testament. And James is writing to believers, the early church, who were scattered out of Jerusalem because of the persecution, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. 
And so these are people who are scattered. They have been kicked out of their homes, out of their businesses, and persecuted because of their faith in the Messiah and the Lord Jesus Christ. And for the most part, history tells us they scattered to the east of Jerusalem. And so James is writing to them to encourage them to live out what they say they believe. This is a book about ethical living. It's not a book about doctrine, but it is a book about how to live out your faith. Very practical. It is called a book about serving faith. How do we live out what we say we believe? And so he says to tell, tells them in verse 7, therefore be patient. And that word is really, in the, in the Greek language, a compound word, which means to suffer long or long-suffering. It comes from uh, that compound Greek word, and the idea is to set a timer on your own temper. Set a timer on your temper for the long run. Think of the long view in all of these things. Focus on the final lap of the race of life and not, not to have a short fuse, but a long one. And some of us do better at that than others. And so he is telling us to suffer long. Be patient because these people are still under oppressive situations. He just got finished telling us how the rich who were unethically oppressing them and these many of these people were under the heel of these wealthy people. And so he's telling them, when you're under pressure, don't respond in like manner, but be patient. And he tells us in verse 7, he says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Now, in this chapter, in this paragraph of the book of James, he is looking forward to end times events. In your bulletin, if you use the bulletin insert on the back of it, I've given you a simplified timeline of end times events. And in Grace Point Church, in our belief statement, we are called premillennial, pre-tribulational, premillennial in belief in the end times. Now, this may shock you, but not all people who name the name of Christ, who are called Christians, approach the Bible the same interpretive method. There are different methods of interpreting Scripture. We adhere to a method that is normal interpretation, literal interpretation, grammatical interpretation, historical interpretation, and systematic. If you are consistent in that interpretive approach to the Bible, you will end up with a timeline that looks like this. In other words, the tribulation is yet still future that God talks about in the word that the Old Testament prophets forecast and Revelation reveals to us, the book of Revelation. Then there is the rapture of the church, uh, or first of all, the rapture of the church before the tribulation, pre-trib. And then the second coming of Christ after the seven years of tribulation. We see uh, the second coming of Christ in Revelation 19, the millennial kingdom, Revelation 20, verse 4. It's a literal 1,000-year kingdom. The Bible is very clear about that. In fact, the rapture, you can read about that in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, where it talks about being caught away. And uh, the rapture... Uh, we get criticized because they say, well, that's not a biblical word, but the literal translation of the Greek is to catch away. And then the Latin Vulgate, which was a Latin translation of Greek manuscripts, used the term rapio, which is a Latin term, which we get our English word rapture from. And so when you hear the word rapture, it is derived from that Greek word in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4.16. And so that is the imminency, and James is talking about the imminency of the return of Christ. 
when he comes for his church, I believe he's referring to this time where there's a rapture and because he's addressing believers, he's not addressing unbelievers in Jesus Christ. He's addressing the church, and we are in the church age right now. Uh, We are 2,100 years into the church age because the church began in Acts chapter 2 back in about 34, 35 A.D. And so we see... Uh, that this is the the thing. And so on on the back of that bulletin insert, I've highlighted in James 5, the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Lord is near. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door uh, so that you may not fall under judgment. It is an imminent event. It was imminent in the time of Paul and James, and both of them write as if they expected it that day. And the New Testament has it. And so it is still imminent. And people scoff at that. And they say, well, it's 2,000 years later. Uh, you know, it's slower than the second coming of Christ. Well, that's why I've printed Second Peter 3, 3 through 9 uh, for your uh, I- encouragement. Uh, because Jesus Christ has a timeline. In fact, he is very gracious and merciful. And he wants, he desires, not, doesn't desire for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, to know him as Savior. And so uh, that coming of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, what's what we're looking for? There's an eager anticipation. And, of course, it's interesting. uh, The church through the ages, when it is under persecution, oppression, and great difficulties, they are eagerly anticipating Jesus Christ coming for them. Whereas those of us who live in a very comfortable age, an age in which in this country we are not persecuted, where we are not oppressed, where we have material goods. Remember last week I told you that all Americans are in the top 1% wealth of the whole world. And uh, so we have it very good. In, probably in all of history, we have it the best of all. And so we tend not to uh, look forward to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have doubt and distraction in our lives. And so he tells us, he gives us an example. Look again at verse 7. And it tells us, he gives us an example or an illustration. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. By the way, patience, he uses the same word four times in the first uh, four verses here. And then he uses endurance, a different word, in the last two verses there. So you start getting the picture that he is wanting us to be patient. And here he uses the example of a farmer, which in the first century, obviously it was an agricultural uh, culture and society, and these people understood what it was like. And they didn't have pivots and circles and irrigation ditches. They waited for the early and late rains. And in the Middle East, the early rains came in like October, the late rains came in April, and so they would plant in the fall and will hopefully have enough rain that it would start to grow and then wait for the latter rains so that it would finish the crop and they would have a great harvest. And so waiting, you know, a farmer can do many things. And those of you in agribusiness, you know that you are very full of activity. You have lots of things you have to do, and yet you cannot force that plant to come up out of the ground. You can't get under there and push it to make it go. You have to wait. And so there is this patience in waiting for the seasons and the days to go. And it's interesting that uh, in waiting, now I understand that uh, many crops, you know, there's a certain number of days before the harvest. So they know they're looking forward to the harvest, which is yet future. In fact, the Bible talks about the latter day rains and is speaking of the coming of Jesus Christ for his people. And so doubt and distraction can come in. And in verse 9, he tells us to wait without complaining. 
You know, waiting is, uh, we think of it in, in the United States, I think, as, as a waste of time if we have to wait. But there is an aspect where it is not a passive activity, but is an active activity. Uh, last Friday, well, we knew a couple days before, a friend of ours from Montana was coming through on her way to uh, uh, Camas, Washington, to see family. And uh, Barb has been a good friend for us for about 40 years. She's been here a couple times. And uh, she's always been supportive. She has traveled everywhere we've lived. And she is a good, close friend. And so we were waiting for her arrival. We didn't know the exact time on Friday when she would arrive. We were waiting, anticipating it, but we weren't just sitting on our thumbs, were we? We were busy getting ready, doing other things, doing life, basically, and then she came. And so that's the idea of waiting like a farmer for what is projected. It is coming, and, and James uses that. In verse 9, he says, wait and don't be a complainer. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so you yourselves will not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And so the tendency, especially if we're in adverse situations, if things aren't going our way, we start to complain about one another. That is a human nature. That is a sinful nature. And he's telling and he's warning these believers and he's warning us, do not become a complainer about other people. And the judgment he's talking about is what is called the Bema judgment seat. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. The Bema in Greek society was in the city square, and it was where the, the judge would sit on the Bema judgment seat, and people would bring their difficulties and problems, and he would make judgments about them. And Paul uses that image in Corinthians of the Bema judgment seat where our salvation is not being judged because that's already taken care of by Jesus Christ. We have the security of everlasting life because we've believed in him and because Jesus Christ has declared us righteous. God has declared us righteous. It's called justification. And so the Bema judgment seat is where our works, our lives will be judged. And it's not for our salvation. That is secure in Christ. But it says there, wood, hay, and stubble. Some of our good works, what we think are good works, will be burned up, but the precious stones will remain, the precious works that God has done beforehand. And so that's the judgment he's talking about. And so we don't want to be a complainer about our brothers and sisters in Christ and have to face that at the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, I was reading a story about a Scottish discus thrower from the 19th century. And uh, he lived in the days before professional trainers, and he developed his skills alone in the highlands of his native village. He wanted to go on to compete in uh, the games in Great Britain. And so he made his own discus from this description he'd read in a book. He read about how a discus, what shape it is, what size it is. And uh, he didn't know that the discus used in competition was made out of wood with an outer rim of iron. So he made his out of solid iron. Uh, he made a discus out of solid metal, and it weighed three or four times as much being used by the challengers, his would-be challengers. But he was committed to his sport, and so he marked out the distance on a field, the current record throw, and trained day and night to be able to match that discus throw. And for nearly a year, he labored under his self-imposed burden of the extra weight becoming very, very good, as you can imagine. He reached the point where he could throw his iron discus the record distance, maybe even further, and he was ready. The Highlander traveled into England for his first competition, and when he arrived at the games, he was handed an official wooden discus, which he promptly threw, uh, the, the, the reporters uh, said, like a tea saucer. 
And he set a new record, a distance far beyond those of his competitors, and nobody could touch him. For many years, he remained the uncontested champion. And something connected with me in that, because it's about discipline, isn't it? It's about the discipline of continuing in something that almost seems fruitless. And that's how you do it. You train under a great burden. And when we are burdened with cares and adversities, that is the training ground to know how patient we are. So we have the discipline of waiting. And then verses 10 and 11, the discipline of endurance. And James goes on to illustrate this whole picture of long-suffering in uh, verse 10. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So the endurance of the prophets, they endured much suffering, and uh, they needed much patience and endurance in this long-temperedness, if you will. You can read about some of these prophets in Hebrews chapter 11, especially in verses 35 through 38, where they're not even named, where it says, women receive back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourging. Yes, also chains and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the grounds. The endurance of the prophets. As you go through the prophets in the Old Testament, the ones who were named, they had a difficult, difficult life for sure. But they had endurance in that. And then in verse 11, he talks about the endurance of Job. Look at verse 11. We counted those blessed who endured. And that blessing is, is, is the makarios. It's like the, the blessing God gives in Matthew chapter 5. Or blessed is the man. And uh, so you have heard of the endurance of Job and seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. And so the discipline of Job, the endurance of Job, he had steadfastness, endurance, perseverance. You know, the book of Job, we often think it's a book about suffering in the Old Testament. Uh, It's a long book, but the chapters are filled with speeches that in the Western mind are kind of long and tedious as you read through those. In the first three uh, chapters, you have Job's distresses. He loses his wealth, his family, that is, except his wife. And she told him to curse God and die, if you remember that. He lost his health. In Job chapter 4, chapters 4 through 31, we read Job's defense as he debates with his so-called three friends uh, with answers to their false accusations. And then Job 38 through 42 present Job's deliverance. First, God humbles Job. And then he honors Job and gives him twice as much as he had before. Uh, The prophets and Job survived because the key is they knew who God was. They had grasped the fact of who and what God was. Everything in life comes down to this one question. What do you believe about God? What do you believe about God? Especially in the darkness of the night, in the difficulties of the day, What sort of God is he? How has he revealed himself in Scripture? Uh, We may learn our theology in the sunshine, one writer said, uh, but we discover our theology at midnight. We discover our theology at midnight. Job and the prophets understood that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. That phrase that you read in your copy of God's Word, full of compassion, that word is only used here in the Greek New Testament. 
And so it is a very rare word. You could translate it as exceedingly compassionate or full of tenderness. Job ended up with more than he started with, but he had to go through terrible trial and loss, and he had to endure that in order to receive it. The prophets also suffered in the name of the Lord. Sometimes they received reward in this life, but more often than not, it came in the next life when they would see the Lord face to face. I was thinking about that whole issue, and that's one of the fundamental questions that we all have is why, does, why do good people suffer? Why is there suffering? And James is answering some of those questions here. But I was thinking about some of the issues in life. You know, mountain climbers, uh, those of you who climb mountains, you could save a lot of time and energy if you just hire a helicopter and right up to the top, right? But that's not the point, is it? That's not the point of the conquest. conquest. It's not efficiency, uh, but it's, they want to reach the goal and they desire to do it by testing and deepening their character, discipline, resolve to do what seems impossible. You know, God could have created scientists, mathematicians, athletes, and musicians, but he didn't do that. He created children who take on these roles over a long process. God doesn't make us fully Christ-like the moment we're born again. He conforms us to the image of Christ gradually. And we do, and we who with unveiled face all reflect on the Lord's glory are being transformed into the likeness with ever-increasing glory. The Christian life is not a once-for-all moment thing in your past. It is an ongoing process. It is this journey that we are on. In our spiritual lives, as in our professional lives, in sports or hobbies, we improve and excel by handling failure and learning from it. Only by cultivating discipline, endurance, and patience do we find satisfaction and reward. And those qualities are developed through some form of suffering. I've talked to many people, it's true in my own life, at those times when my Christian character has been accelerated and grown, it's always in suffering and, and adversity and difficulty and loss. And so we have the discipline of waiting that we all need to work on, the discipline of enduring in difficult times. And verse 12, the discipline of truthfulness. Look at verse 12. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth with any other oath, but you let your yes is to be yes and your no knows that you may not fall under judgment. Again, he's speaking about the judgment seat of Christ, the beam of judgment seat. Really, verse 12 seems out of place. Here we've been going along, you know, the farmers, the prophets, and Job, and be patient, patient, endure, endure. And here we have this thing about your yes be yes and your no be no. And uh, what does this have to do with the problem of suffering, with the problem of growing in faith, with the problem of discipline? Well, if you've ever uh, suffered and if you've ever been in adverse situations, you know what the answer is. It's easy to say things we don't mean and to even make bargains with God when we're going through difficult circumstances. Uh, basically, he's saying in this verse, truthfulness at all times, truthfulness in all places. I'm always, and I've probably used the phrase too, you know, when somebody comes up to you and says, let me be honest with you. Well, aren't you honest all the time? Or is it just this time that you're finally going to be honest with me? And that's kind of like be making an oath here. I remember receiving a letter of a woman who used to attend this church. Uh, she'd been a believer for 50-some years. She wrote a letter, and, uh, and it, one of her complaints, something, I don't even remember the context, but at the end of it she said, and I won't do this by Jove, and she ended her letter. And I'm sure it was done out of ignorance, but do you know who Jove is? 
Anybody know? It's the Roman god Jupiter. Okay? And she was swearing by the Roman god Jupiter. That's making an oath. And I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a phrase that people used to use, I guess. But for Christians, we need to be careful by what we are swearing by. In the, in the, in the ancient uh, Jewish people of James's day, they, would, they knew that they weren't supposed to swear by God's name. It was a holy name. So they'd say, by heaven or by earth. And in other words, they were putting a stamp of honesty on whatever they're saying there. But for us as believers, we are to be truthful at all times in all places. We should never have to say, let me be honest with you. We need to say we're always honest. We're always the integrity of that. Uh, when you think of Job, you know, for example, the patriarch said, Naked I came out of my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, the Bible says, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Uh, Job did curse the day that he was born, Job 3.1. But he never cursed God or spoke with a foolish oath. Neither did he ever try to bargain with God. And that's what James is concerned about here in verse 12, that our yes be yes and our no be no. In other words, honesty at all times, truthfulness at all times in all places. Uh, When we wait on the Lord, we're saying, I know, God, you're going to resolve this situation, whatever it is. I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't know when you're going to do it, but I know you're going to make it right. I'm not giving up. I'm waiting on him. You know, I think for all of us, uh, we recognize that the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is righteous, holy, perfect, and makes no mistakes, and that he will make all things right. Now, in your life, as in many of our lives, there may be perhaps broken relationships, relationships that have not been reconciled like they should, and they need to be fixed. And we hope it happens in this life. But somehow, someplace in heaven, it's going to be made right. Jesus Christ will make it right. He will give us the strength and the grace to endure as we trust him for it. And may our faith grow as we wait on the Lord. The issue really is not your problems. That's just, uh, you know, the issue is not your problems. That is a symptom of other things in your life. The issue is God. If God is who he says he is, then we've got every reason to keep believing when hard times hit. And in fact, believe more. And so we need to take heart. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ for everlasting life, you are a child of God, and nothing that you have or is going through is out of his sight. And when the Lord's purposes are finally made clear, you'll be glad you did not cut and run. Okay? I was reading about Pachomius. Pachomius was an Egyptian soldier who was won to Christ by the kindness of Christians in Thebes in the first century. After his release from the military, or excuse me, in the third century, after his release from the military, he was baptized, and he was very serious about his newfound faith in Jesus Christ, and he determined to grow, and he became a disciple of a, of a monk named Palamon, who was an ascetic, and taught him that self-denial and solitary life is the epic thing, the apex of a hermetic life. In other words, become a hermit out in the desert. It was very popular in the first three centuries. In early Christianity, the model of devotion was a recluse dedicated to resisting the corruptions of society. These hermits wandered the desert alone, fasting, praying, having visions. Many went to extremes, eating nothing but grass, living in trees, or refusing to wash. And that was considered spirituality. And that was the popular image of holiness, solitude, silence, severity of life, 
and such was Pachomius's early spiritual training. But then he began to question the methods and lifestyle of his mentors. How can you learn to love if no one else is around you? How can you learn humility living alone? How can you learn kindness or gentleness or goodness in isolation? How can you learn patience unless someone puts yours to the test? In short, he concluded that developing spiritual life, uh, spiritual fruit in life requires being around people, ordinary, honorary people. <laughs> to save souls, he said, you must bring them together. You know, a spiritual muscle isn't even learned when we just hang out with people we like. Did you realize that? We gravitate those who are like-minded, and we like, and we want to be with our friends, and that's great. But God's love is learned when we can't be selective about our associates. You know what? Perhaps this is why uh, the two institutions established by God, the family and the church, are not joined by invitation only. Have you thought about that? We have no choice about who our parents are or brothers or sisters, yet we are expected to love them. Neither can we choose or will <clears throat> who will or who will not be in the family of God. Anybody who believes in Jesus for everlasting life is welcome. We learn that sacrificial kind of love most effectively in our involuntary associations away from the temptation of choosing to love only those who are attractive to us. So Pachomius began as an ascetic where holiness was developed not in isolation but in community. He started a community of these people instead of each person taking God in his own way with the dangers of idleness and eccentricity. Uh, Pachomius established a common life based on worship, work, and discipline. And in a community with flawed, demanding, sometimes disagreeable people, followers of Pachomius learned to take hurt rather than to give it. They discovered that disagreements and opposition provided the opportunity to redeem life situations and experience God's grace. Although this man, Pachomius, is largely forgotten in church history, it points us to the... Uh, to uh, this solitary satisfaction, as attractive it may seem, that we just hang out with those like us in life, in our busyness and interruptions, we can develop the, the qualities of life that God have us, has for us. And we can learn the discipline of patience today. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your...